Thank you, music team, for leading us again as we sing the Lord's praises together as a church family. Well, picture this, if you will, this morning, something you might not want to think about, but it's something we all have to think about at some point. Picture this situation. You know, you know that the end for you is near. Your life is coming to a close, and you In those moments, you summon your family and you gather them around. And they all come and you look face to face, person to person at this circle around you. And you've called them together because you have some some things you want to share with them. You have words that you want them to hear from you. And you want to make sure that they get it and that they hang on to it. That they listen clearly and don't miss what you're saying. And as you look around the room and you move from one person to the next, everyone is listening but you're locking eyes with one person at a time. And you have a specific message for each person. And it has something to do with with their personality, with the circumstances they're facing, and even with your relationship with them and the, the state that it's in in those moments. And you're talking to one at a time, and you've got something specific to them because of who they are and, and how you're connected. But they're all listening to what you're saying to everyone. Because you want all of them to hear it all. There's something for each one to learn in what you're saying to everyone. And yet there is those, those moments and those words. There are those words that you have directed to a specific individual. That's a, a similar situation to what we find in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. As Jesus sends these letters to these seven churches through the Apostle John. And in first century Asia Minor, we have these seven churches spread around this this trade route, this, this road to be traveled. And they are receiving these letters specific to them, but they're receiving all seven letters. And even bigger than that, they are the ones receiving the book of Revelation. They are the ones to whom the book is initially written. And so they've gathered for church and and they're there in in Smyrna on a particular morning and the letter has arrived and the pastor's been reading through this letter all week, time and time again, over and over again through the book of Revelation, the book that Jesus has sent to them through John. And as he's reading and reflecting, he's just looking forward to those moments of sharing this together on Sunday. And as the people gather together, they're listening to the description of Jesus in chapter 1. And then in chapter 2, they listen as he directs his attention to the church in Ephesus. Just down the road, not all that far. A city that you know well. A church with which you're familiar. People, brothers and sisters in Christ that you probably know. And they listen as, as the words to the church in Ephesus are, are read. And in that letter, Jesus commends them for a number of things. And it's making sense as you're tracking along. And you say, we know that church. We know those people. And Jesus calls the church in Ephesus, as we saw last week, to a 3D ministry. Remember? The first thing he said was he commanded them for their deeds, their hard work. You are serving well. You're serving consistently and faithfully. You're doing your best. You are serving well in the church and as the church. And he commends them for that. And the people in Smyrna are thinking, yeah, that makes sense. We know Ephesus. They're busy. They're hardworking. They're they're faithful in the process. That makes sense. Yeah, we know their deeds. Their deeds are good. 
And then Jesus says, I, I know your doctrine, I know what you're teaching, and you're standing firm for the truth of the word. You're not allowing people to come with false teaching and twist the Bible to mean what they want it to mean, to lead people astray after themselves instead of after Jesus. And so Jesus commends them, and people say, yeah, I, I've been to some of those services. I know some of those people. We've talked about some of these issues, and I know they stand for the truth. This sounds fantastic. This is good. This makes total sense. And then Jesus says, there's a problem in Ephesus, and that is this. That you've learned well from that letter that Paul wrote to you 30 years before. That you've been saved by grace. You didn't earn it. But you've been saved by grace, and now, now, you are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works and God has some things lined up for you to do, and you need to get busy doing them. And, and, and they've learned that well, and they've passed that on, and that work ethic in the church has continued. And boy, we need that, don't we? Of course, we need people who, who will say, I'm a part of the body of Christ, and God has gifted us all, and we need to serve together, we need to serve faithfully, we need to serve consistently, and do our best. That's what we need to do, is to serve in and as the church, and, and that makes sense. And we understand that we need to pass along, as the church in Ephesus did, and a, a desire for pure doctrine, for that we just know the truth. We don't get distracted. We don't get diverted off, off the right path by, by just knowing the truth of God's Word. And we pass that along to the next generation, and that makes sense. But the problem was there was no heart underlying it anymore. The devotion had gone. Their first love, their, their love of God above everything and every, everyone. Their love of God beyond even their love for themselves. The call of Jesus to love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, and mind. They'd walked away from that. And in the process of, of now not loving God first and foremost, but loving the idea of church and of teaching the right thing and being right and of, of working hard and being known for, for a good reputation for working hard, when you stop having your eyes set on the Lord and your heart there and your love for Him, what happens? You stop loving each other the same way as you used to and are called to. And you stop loving the lost, people who need Christ, the way that we ought to and we're supposed to. We get distracted. And now we've got a cold orthodoxy and it's that love, that devotion that, that makes the, the deeds and the doctrine come off the page and come to life and make an impact in our own lives and in the lives of those around us. And Smyrna is tracking with that letter and they're listening and they, they can picture the people. They, they, they know the homes in which they meet and they can picture the city of Ephesus and they're, they're understanding all of that. And as they're reflecting on that, as they hear these words, suddenly they hear their name. It's like Smyrna, it's, it's your turn. And they're like, it's our turn. It's our turn now. I wonder what Jesus is going to say. And it continues to be our turn as we now, so many generations later, take the Word of God and what the Spirit has said and is saying to the churches and we reflect ourselves on what He's saying to all of us and to each of us. Amen? Revelation chapter 2, verse 8 says this, And to the angel, the messenger of the church in Smyrna, write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich and the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. 
Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Father, as we come to your word this morning, we need to hear from you. We are grateful that we have your words, the words of Jesus directed to this church in Smyrna so long ago. But we're grateful that you have protected and preserved it and delivered it to us even today. And we are confident that by your spirit you still are speaking to the churches and to this church and to our hearts and you have something for us today and we pray that you would help us not to miss it. Help us to, to connect with what you're saying to each of us and to all of us as we gather in this place today and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Smyrna was a city not too far from Ephesus. Next on the delivery route, as the, the mailman took these copies of the book of Revelation from John to the, to the churches. Smyrna is only mentioned in Scripture here in the book of Revelation in relation to these churches and these letters. We don't know many details about this church. It's possible that Paul had planted that church back in Acts 19 when he spent those years in Ephesus in the area. It's possible. It's possible that, that the church in Ephesus in the years to follow Paul's time there had gone out and planted more churches, including the church in Smyrna next door down the road. It's possible John had something to do with the start of that church. We're not entirely sure. But we know a little bit about the city. It was a city whose... Who's uh, inhabitants, whose citizens, whose residents were well known to be infatuated with Rome. All things Rome. All things Rome. History records strange things and, and extreme things that they would do to express their loyalty to Rome. In AD 26, Rome actually picked Smyrna because of its loyalty to the empire as the location for the new temple to be built in honor of and for the worship of the emperor Tiberius. That's how loyal Smyrna was to Rome. Now Ephesus and Pergamum, we'll look at that next week, those were larger cities. Those were more important cities politically and economically. But Smyrna was said to be the most beautiful city in Asia parked there as a port on the Aegean Sea. Massive hills looking out over the, over the ocean. A beautiful place. Beautiful place. Fantastic construction all over the place. They had a road, in fact, that they even called the Street of Gold that wound around this massive hill that was covered in all of these glorious temples built to all these false gods and emperors. The Street of Gold. It's a beautiful city. Ephesus would eventually silt up that port. And as a result, it was no longer used by the ships and it was passed by and passed over. And eventually, it just became ruins to be toured by tour buses now. That didn't happen to Smyrna. Smyrna, over the centuries, suffered fires and several numbers of earthquakes, but it was always rebuilt. It was always rebuilt. 
And today, if you went to Turkey, you could go to the city of Izmir and you would be standing in Smyrna. Remember that to the angel, the, the messenger of the church in Smyrna, not the church of Smyrna, we're not the church of Harrow or of Essex County. This is the church in Harrow and in Essex County. This is where we reside, not where we belong. Amen? Remember that. To the church in Smyrna, write this. And Jesus announces again who it is that's writing this letter. I have something to say to you, and I am the one who is the first and the last. I'm the one who died and came to life. Again, this ties us back up to verse 17 of chapter 1. Remember that in this description of Jesus, we'll now have each of these details show up in the various letters to the churches. And here Jesus reminds them that he's the one who said, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. This is the one who's speaking to them. I'm the first and the last. There is no one who was before me and there is no one who will outlast me. I am the first and the last. I am above, I am over all things. Not only that, Jesus says, I am the one who died, remember? <laughs> I'm the one who died and rose again. I conquered sin and I conquered death. I offer life, I offer a share in my victory. You've heard it said that someone is larger than life. Jesus is bigger than life itself. And Jesus is bigger even than death. And He needs to be bigger than life itself and He needs to be bigger than death itself in our own hearts and in our own minds as we live here day to day. We need to get that right. We need to get that right. Jesus is the one who has power and authority over life and death. Jesus is the one in a position of power, in a position of authority. Jesus is the one who is in absolute control, not the emperor then and not anyone now and not anyone else ever. He is the one in authority. And it is Jesus who is now speaking to this group in this particular city. And he begins by saying, I know, I know the tribulation, your tribulation." The all-seeing Lamb of God, as we reminded, were reminded of last week, the all-seeing, all-knowing Lamb of God knows who they are, where they are, and what's going on. And he says, I know your tribulation. The church in Smyrna was being persecuted by the Romans. Domitian, by this time, late first century, was the emperor of Rome. And by this time, he had declared that he would be referred to as our Lord and our God. And he was, unless you happen to be a follower, a child, a redeemed one, a worshiper of the one who actually is our Lord and our God. The people of Smyrna worshipped false gods. They worshipped the emperor. And a lot of their trade guilds were even tied into specific false gods that they would worship. And if you weren't aligned with and identified with one of these gods, you could find yourself on the outside looking in very quickly economically. And you could be excluded and pushed to the margins. 
and find it very difficult to make a living. You would be ostracized, ostracized socially. And by this point in history, it was now a capital offense to refuse the annual sacrifice to the emperor as an act of worship to him. It was a capital offense to not participate. The church in Smyrna was facing tribulation and persecution. And when that happens, how does our heart respond? One of the first things we do is we start to feel all alone, don't we? We've been forgotten and abandoned and we feel like we are on our own and helpless. Jesus says, no, you're not alone. I know your tribulation. I see, I know, I care. And where am I? Look back to chapter 1. I'm right there amongst the lampstands. I am right there amongst the churches. I am here with you. You are seen. You are seen. And this is a reminder to us that we need to be very, very careful. Appearances are so deceiving because the most beautiful city in Asia was also one of the most dangerous cities in Asia, if you were a follower of Christ. Don't be sucked in by appearances. Look at the reality. Well, appearances are deceiving in terms of, of the scene as you, you pull into the city, not realize, realizing what's going on under the surface. But they're also deceiving when it comes to wealth, isn't it? Jesus says, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. Why were they poor? Because they refused to worship these gods and join these clubs that would trade and carry on economically in their name, and they were on the outside looking in, and they were poor. They were having a hard time making ends meet, providing for their families, caring for one another. But Jesus, the one who has told us back in Matthew 6 and the Sermon on the Mount, he said, store up for yourself treasures where? Because no matter what you've got and how much of it you've got here and now, it is going to rot, it's going to decay, it's going to devalue, it's going to be stolen, or you're going to die and leave it to somebody else that's just going to blow it on stupid stuff anyway. It's all temporary and fleeting, right? That's what he says. Solomon said that. Jesus said that. We're taught repeatedly we've got to set our our eyes higher, don't we? And Jesus said, you appear to be poor, but we both know you're rich. We both know you're rich. James Hamilton puts it this way. He says, we who have the wealth of which Jesus speaks are like a poor man boarding the Titanic. We watch all the bejeweled people of wealth and fashion and etiquette and connections pass by us with never so much as a nod of courtesy. Because all we brought on board this ship that will sink in the night is a small, seemingly worthless lifeboat. Brothers and sisters, we are rich because we have what will save life unto eternity. And when Jesus comes back on that white horse, outdated clothing beat-up cars, and houses where all the appliances have not been updated will cease to be indications that we are unwealthy. Because the only thing that will matter is whether or not you have the gospel. And if you have the gospel, you are rich indeed. And that's what we have if you trust Christ. Amen? That's what we have. 
There's economic uncertainty in our country right now over some railway blockades. The stock markets took a real pounding this week over what? Over fears of a virus and, and the economic fallout from that. And there's people laying awake at night worried about what they've gotten as it's slipping through their fingers. Did that rattle you? Or did you just go to bed just fine? Because your treasures are elsewhere. How do you measure your economic standing? By the kind of cell phone or cell phone plan you can afford? By the amount of discretionary income you have for things like, you know, vacations and, and whatever else you want, entertainment? Or do you measure your standing by the fact that the God who spoke everything into existence, who owns all things, has declared you now because of his son, his you are now his child, an heir to all things? How do you view your economic standing? Jesus said, I know your poverty, but you are rich. And I know the, the, the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. That sounds intense. What's that all about? Jesus said, you're facing tribulation at the hand of the Romans. And as a result, you're poor. But we know you're rich. Set your eyes on, on something a little higher here. And he says, this slander here, what's going on? Well, Paul tells us in Romans 2, that not all Jews are Jews. Is it enough to be born a Jew? What did he say? He said it's not about being born a Jew and circumcised in body, it's circumcised in heart. It's, a, it's an internal thing. It's am I walking with God on His terms as His people or not? That's what Paul makes the, dis, the difference. And that's what Jesus is doing here as well. The Jews, in this part of the Roman Empire, the Jews had an exemption from some of the emperor worship. But they did not want to share it. And so it, it was reported that Jews were actually handing in Christians to the Romans. These guys aren't sacrificing to your gods. These guys aren't worshiping your emperor. Turning them over to be persecuted. They were blaspheming Jesus, who we know was the Messiah. They were blaspheming Jesus and slandering his people. They were accusing them of incest because they referred to each other as brother and sister. They accused them of cannibalism because they gathered around a table with symbols on it that they referred to as the body and blood of Jesus. They did all kinds of things to stir up trouble and have the Christians arrested. And Jesus warned them in John chapter 16. He warned his followers. He warned us, I have said these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he's offering service to God. They think they're doing God a favor by getting rid of the Christians. And they'll do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. That's what was going on. This is a serious situation in Smyrna, wasn't it? And Jesus says, I know your tribulation, I know your poverty, and I know your slander. And they're sitting there thinking, oh good, Jesus knows. That means relief and rescue must be on the way, right around the corner. Thank you, this is good news. And Jesus actually says, no, not now, not yet. In fact, it's about to get worse. He says, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Imagine the church in Smyrna that day? 
They're looking at each other saying, there's more? It's going to get even more difficult for us? Jesus says, don't fear. Just like he said back in chapter 1, verse 17, fear not. I'm the first and the last. I'm the living one. I died and I've risen again. Don't you be afraid of what you're going through. He says the devil's going to put some of you in prison where you'll be tested. You'll be tested to the reality of your faith. In that testing, faith will be strengthened. And in that testing, it will be proven that Satan cannot destroy faith. Sound like anybody named Job? That the testing of our faith is to produce fruit in our own lives? But there are times when it's not even so much about us. It's about a much bigger picture and God is doing and teaching and showing things on another level that you are not privy to. And he says, things are coming and you are going to be tested. And he says, this is going to last for 10 days. He's not talking about 240 hours here. He's saying, this is going to be a limited time. This is a prescribed time, a a declared time, a designated time, a limited period of time that I have declared. It will not last forever. Endure. Hang on to me with white knuckles and endure. Stay faithful. It will not last forever, but it is coming. As Paul said in Romans chapter 8, he said, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Set your eyes on home and stick with me through this. He even says, be faithful unto death and I'll give you the crown of life. Be faithful unto death. This is about to get a lot worse. But I will give you the crown of life, Jesus says. And remember, I'm the one who died and rose again. So I'm the one who can grant you life. (laughs) Don't worry. Stick with me. I've shown you how to live. I've shown you how to die in the hands of the Father, committed to the Father, and you are safe now in my hands. We need examples, don't we, of how to live and also how to die? Singer Michael Card wrote that he had a man, an older man, who spent his life discipling him and mentoring him throughout his life. He said one day the phone rang and this friend called who lived in another city across the U.S. and said, Michael, I've just been told I have cancer and it's terminal. I've only got months to live. So my wife and I are selling our home. We're packing up and we're moving to Nashville to be close to you and your family. What did Michael say? Oh, I am so sorry to hear that. But yes, come. It will be my privilege to serve you and do whatever I can to help you. And he said, no, 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 no. (laughs) We're not coming to get help. Michael, I have spent years showing you and teaching you how a Christian lives. I'm moving to be close so I can show you how a Christian dies. Wow. Wow. Wouldn't it be something if we had parents and grandparents that said those kind of things to us? I'm going to show you how to stay faithful to God right to the end. Let's just walk with Him and trust Him. Life and death are in his hands. 
Jesus said, do not fear what's coming. It's going to get worse, and some of you are going to die, but be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. I wonder, what do I fear, what do I fear more? Do I fear more dying for Jesus or denying him? What do you fear more? When we looked at the persecuted church this past fall, one of the messages that came out of the persecuted church was this. The worst thing that could happen to us is not suffering and dying. The worst thing that could happen to us is sin and denying Jesus. So pray that we remain faithful no matter what. Wow. That's, Jesus says, don't fear the first death. Don't fear that. I've been there. I've conquered it. And I offer you life. I offer you life. Polycarp was a native of Smyrna. He was an early Christian martyr. According to the historians Tertullian and Irenaeus, he was appointed by John himself as Smyrna's lead pastor. On February 2nd, 156 AD, Polycarp was ordered by the Roman proconsul to swear publicly by the genius of Caesar and to revile Christ. He refused, saying that he had served Christ for 86 years now, adding, how can I blaspheme my king who saved me? Tradition records Polycarp's prayer right before he was burned at the stake. O Lord, Almighty God, the Father of your beloved Son, Jesus Christ, through whom we have come to know you, I thank you for counting me worthy this day and hour of sharing the cup of Christ among the number of your martyrs. I think the message of Jesus to the church in Smyrna in the first century took root, don't you think? Be faithful even unto death, and I will grant you the crown of life. Listen, friends, the goal is not bold, heroic courage. We don't need more Christians who are, who are strong, bold, heroic, heroically courageous individuals. It's not about us. The goal is is to have absolute confidence in Jesus Christ. He is the first and the last. He's the one who died and is now living again. He is the one with power over life and death. So we place our confidence in Him. We place our confidence in Him. Because in life and in death, as well as in the book of Revelation, the focus is Jesus. Amen? The focus is Jesus. And then he concludes this short letter the way he concludes this series of letters. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear. You say, just a minute. That's the personal. That's the individual. That's the he. That's the the me. Do I have an ear to hear what the Spirit's saying? Not just the words that have been read, but the message that's being delivered. Am I actually listening and paying attention to this? He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to whom? The churches, plural. There's a plural, there's a corporate nature to this as well because we're in this together and this is not just for each of us, this is for all of us. Have an ear and let let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. That's a loaded statement. The one who conquers, the one who overcomes, we saw that in Romans chapter 8 last week, didn't we? In all these things we are more than conquerors. They come at us with the sword, okay, and all these things we are more than conquerors through him who who loved us, amen? 
to those who conquer, to those who overcome, not to those who survive. You notice he didn't say to those who survive this. He says, no, to the one who conquers. And over in chapter 12, as we read last week, we, we get to the point in the book of Revelation where we read this, they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. They came for forgiveness and life in Jesus. They were faithful to him, and they didn't love this life more than they loved Jesus. Take this life if you want. Jesus has eternal life for me. Send me to my death if you choose. Jesus has declared the second death has no power over me. That's, that's the conquerors. They will not be hurt by the second death. For the follower of Jesus, the worst thing is not the last thing. Suffering and death is not the last thing. The resurrection is to come. The eternal life is to come. And so our hope is in the Lord, not in this life. Amen? Our hope is in Jesus, not in the government or some kind of government official or program. Our hope is at home in eternity, not here. And so today I remind us that Jesus is larger than life. Jesus is larger than death. And we're to be faithful to him, no matter the cost. No matter the cost. Jonathan Sachs is the former chief rabbi of Great Britain, he once wrote, once wrote what he calls the counterintuitive phenomena of Jewish history. And it is something that is also true of Christians down through history. And here it is. He said, when it was hard to be a Jew, people stayed Jewish. When it was easy to be a Jew, people stopped being Jewish. Globally, this is the major Jewish problem of our time. He wrote that just a few years ago. It's true of Christian history as well, church history. I've talked to people in, in, church, in countries of persecution. You know what they've said? That kind of stuff, that just purifies the church. We stop playing games. People that are playing games and it's just on the surface, they leave. And the rest of us just trust God, cling to Him, and watch Him work. Because we know it's not about this life. It's about the next one. It's about eternity. And no matter how poor we may appear, we are rich. And no matter what we may suffer, Jesus is with us. And if they choose to take our lives, that's okay. Because Jesus says the second death cannot touch us. We will live with him forever. Friends, Jesus offers us forgiveness in life. Aren't you glad? But he calls us then to deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow him. Is that you? Is that you? If you are a follower of Jesus this morning, you have surrendered everything you have and everything you are to him. You've turned your back on doing things your own way and say, I need his righteousness, not my own. I need his forgiveness. I need the life that only he can bring. Then let's remember Jesus together as we reflect on our own hearts together around this table. Let's come to the table now. And we'll pray together for bread.